In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin, um, some announcements. One is uh, I've been becoming more active on Clubhouse, the app that's an audio-only app where you can create rooms and have discussions on different topics. Um, I've done a few question and answers through some other groups, but I now have created my own group and I, I hope you can join me there. A psych talk with Dr. Farid. Um, I had a 25 character limit, so I, I, that wasn't exactly the name I wanted, but tried to get some point across there, but I'll be doing book club discussions. So uh, over the years that I've been doing the books of the week, a few people have asked me, could there be some way of having a discussion where people could be more involved, which I think is a, a good idea. And so this might be a way to do that. So this coming Monday, I'll do the first uh, book club meeting on Clubhouse uh, Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, Los Angeles time. So you can join that, but I'll also do question and answers and other programs there as well. So you can find me on Clubhouse. Um, also next week on Wednesday's show, I'm very much looking forward to having Dr. Mark Solms on the show. He's the neuroscientist who wrote the book, The Hidden Spring, which I talked about uh, two weeks ago, or actually I think it was last week, which I thought was an incredible book. So I'm very excited and honored to have him on the show next Wednesday, Wednesday April 28th. All right. Um, I wanted to start the show today with uh, what is really the biggest piece of news here in the United States which was the verdict was announced or they reached a verdict in the case of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer who um, was charged with murder when it came to uh, George Floyd, that he uh, was convicted of second degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. Um, and so this this case, of course, had garnered a lot of media attention starting last May when the video was released and it was definitely uh, instrumental in um, protests and a, a very big movement. We knew that this it was not a new issue, police brutality or police um, targeting black Americans, but uh, this, this uh, incident along with several others including Breonna Taylor last uh, spring and summer or they were released or talked about last spring and summer really sparked a lot of um, outrage but also movement and, and and a lot was happening and going on but now it's almost a year later and we've gotten to this verdict and of course people are feeling a lot of different emotions um, people had a lot of very strong opinions about the case I actually when I saw that the verdict was announced I 
felt a, a rush of feelings. Um, I thought it was the right verdict. Um, but I also felt some sadness in some ways, in different ways. It was just a reminder of what had happened. It was just a lot of things. And so I think for a lot of people, there's been a wave of uh, a variety of emotions that people uh, have experienced and, and I've been going through as well. Um, as I said, I think it was the right verdict. I'm definitely not a legal expert, but based on what was obvious in the video and um, what they had to deliberate to me, it does make sense that what the, the former officer did was totally wrong and um, total disregard for life. I mean, the way he was on his neck for over nine minutes and with his hands in his pockets and you know, as he's begging for his life, uh, I, I thought it was just, it was painful, very, very painful to watch. Um, and so we can be happy about, or I say I can speak for myself, but anyone else who feels that way, happy about the verdict in the sense we think it was justice, but it doesn't necessarily mean there is overall justice. So we had this case, and I think that was very important because there has been a history of police violence, police brutality in the United States, but historically the, there's been almost no consequences or very few consequences or accountability for the officers involved. And so this was a potential step in the right direction, but again, just one step. A lot of times people are looking for something that's going to end a problem, but a problem this big doesn't just end with one, one moment. Um, just like for a lot of people, there was this thought that when Barack Obama was elected president, that, that ended racism in the United States. It was that people talked about a post-racial America. And obviously that was not the case then when he was elected in 2008 and 13 years or so later, we're, we're still not there. Of course, racism is very much alive and well, sadly, which was a big part of this case as well. Um, so I, I was, again, had a rush of emotion, still have them when I think about it. It's, it's a not just a good feeling because of so, so much is going on. On top of not just this case itself, which can bring up mixed feelings, another reason why I have mixed feelings is because this was one incident which was emblematic or uh, an example of so many other incidents. So it wasn't just that George Floyd was the first and last individual to, to experience what he did. Um, this was happening and has happened and still is happening in the United States. And that's what is sad. If there was not, uh, if there were not people around to videotape the incident, we can almost be certain that none of this would have actually happened because um, many people were sharing this yesterday and, you know, the case happened almost a year ago. So maybe this was talked about about a year ago. But again, people were talking about the initial report uh, from Minneap the Minneapolis Police Department, um, which really changed the story based on what we saw that just said there was a medical incident that led to George Floyd's death. So um, here's, I think, part of the statement. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s in his car. He was ordered to step from his car after he got out. He physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. Um, I don't think anyone would hear that paragraph and think it matches what was observed uh, in that video. 
uh, you know, medical distress. It makes it seem very much like he just died while the police were with him or around him, not that they in any way caused or contributed to his death. And so if there was no videotape, this was all we would have. Um, sadly, George Floyd died. He would not be able to report his side. And even often when um, the side of the, against the police is reported, it doesn't get the same uh, attention or the uh, weight in the courtroom. So we would have just heard this report. We wouldn't have even heard about this. It would have just been someone died in police custody. But uh, what made it stand out or what made it turn into what it was was that it was videotaped and that, that those videotapes that were released stirred people up because they were seeing something that was undeniable. Um, and that that is actually, I think, uh, concerning. This was just last year. So this is when we say we still have work to do and some people might think oh things are fair or they're you know this was like a, a you know things like this don't happen um, it's happening still and this would have happened last year without us knowing about it and these are challenging issues and I definitely don't think we ever should look at them black and white that all police are bad or all police are good or all anything is good or bad but the system is definitely uh, a big issue that we have to look at when we talk about systematic racism we hear those types of terms and just can throw it out there but they're they're really complicated what does that really mean is it just one bad incident um, is it a bad apple or is there something wrong with the tree and we have to look at the tree and what's going on at its roots um, that's causing what's going on and so this is a bigger issue that relates to race and racism in the United States, even relates to things like poverty in the United States and how that disproportionately affects certain individuals um, of our country and our community. And so I hope we won't just look at this, and I think people are looking at this as an incident to motivate and mobilize and continue the fight and, and the progress towards racial uh, unity, but also towards um, better policing and better ways of dealing with things. What we saw that day was really horrible and heartbreaking, and there, I don't think there's any need or place for that. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. So this was one incident, a big incident, of course. It captured our attention for lots of reasons, but it's just one event. And, you know, I, you know, there's so many different sides to the story, and if you of course, with social media and even just media in general. There's so many things you're going to hear from different people. One thing I've heard from people that are, um, I, guess, I guess, a little bit not in favor of, of being so against the police officer is that, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd did something wrong, which was he was possibly uh, having a forged $20 bill. Um, and also that he might have had, let's say, uh, criminal activity in his past or had a record but those things are irrelevant to what we are talking about and even by bringing that up we are putting different value on human lives which is part of this issue and why black lives matter even is a political movement and a statement that's significant that no one should be treated that way so something that people do kind of creating a straw man argument is to say why are we turning george floyd into a hero um when, you know, was he necessarily the person that we'd say is your hero? And it's not that people are necessarily saying he's a hero or trying to make a hero out of him, but he was someone who suffered. He was a victim. And we do pay attention to victims because they are being hurt unjustly. And that's why he has gotten attention. So I think when people hear people saying his name, it's because what he th went through was unjust. And also it's a symbol of 
this issue that exists. So when people say George Floyd, they of course mean him and what he went through and what he suffered unjustly. But they're also talking about race and racism in America. They're also talking about policing and how that needs to be reformed and there's problems there. They're talking about a whole host of other issues when they say his name. Just like when they say uh, others' names, when they say Breonna Taylor's name, of course, it's about her and what she went through being incredibly unjust to lose her life in that way is not fair, of course, is the worst thing that can happen to someone. And we cannot be okay with that. But also it is a call to action and a call to the the situation and the issues that are there. Um, And I, I do also want to make the point that, of course, I'm not saying that all police officers are bad. Of course not. I actually think it's the system that really is problematic. Um, and some of those things hopefully will be changing. There's talk of change, but talk of change is just talk. It has to actually turn into action. And I'm hoping that that will happen. Um, but as I said, my own experience was lots of different feelings, and I'm sure many people are having that too. And I hope you'll Give yourself the space to, to process that, to go through it, to talk with others, um, to, to kind of explore what's going on. It'll take some time. This was a, a big, big problem, big issue. But again, I hope it won't just end with talk and we'll forget that this happened or feel like, okay, that's taken care of. We can move on. This was a step in a process towards more justice, um, towards reducing and removing racism in our society. And also, I think, in rethinking policing punishment in the United States, how we are so focused on on punishment and authority in ways that are not helpful to anyone and and create more problems rather than solve them. Um, So I I know it's on a lot of people's minds, so I wanted to share some thoughts about that. I'm sure it'll be a topic of further discussion as well. But let's get to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hello? Yes, hi. How are you? I- I'm good. We can't hear you very well. It sounds like you're far from the speaker. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you hear better now? A little bit better, but even if you could speak louder, it would be good. We- it's still a little bit hard to hear you. So, first, thank you so much uh, for your show. My pleasure. Uh, thank you. Second of all, um, I just want to talk about the my kid, okay. you know, he's like uh, five and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, he has uh, like, we have, we have like a, uh, like a friend, they have a same age kid. So mm-hmm. they come and play together. But, you know, he doesn't uh, sometimes want to share his uh, like toys with his friend. Okay. So I think this is normal, but the friend of uh, basically the mom of his friend told the, him that uh, he has a problem that don't share with you and then my kid told me i didn't know about it until last night he talked to me and said i have a problem i don't share my toys to the uh, mm-hmm. other kids you know i don't know how, how to explain it to him and even in his mind i uh, i don't know I, he, he just repeated again and again and i told him hey this is your stuff you yeah. if you don't want to share it don't share it but he just at last said okay you have a problem why you just continue talking about that did you tell him that <laughs> i'm sorry did you tell him why do you keep talking about it 
No, he told me. My kids told me why. Uh, no, no, I didn't tell them okay. why you are talking about it. But mm-hmm. the only explanation is that mm-hmm. this is your choice. And if you don't want to share it, don't share it. I just told it a couple of times and then maybe more than three, four times. Yeah. And then at last she said, why you are, uh, why you are talking about this? Too much. You have a problem. You know, he, my kid is very smart. I know mm-hmm. that. But I don't know how I can explain it to him. This is one uh, situation. I have Let, another situation okay, too. Let's, we'll go, how I can well, let's, go, let's go one at a time just because uh, um, it might be hard to jump around a little bit. So oh. the first one, you know, so sharing is uh, one of those issues that we parents uh, – you know, we try to teach our kids that it's good to share in a way, but of course, we also don't want to make them feel like they don't get to have their own things or they won't be able to, um, you know, keep what they want or play with what they want. As they get older, though, we also do want to show them that it can be good to be kind to others and we do share. So not in a way you have to or you're forced to, but it can even feel good to play with your friends or it feels good when someone shares with you. So we sometimes want to share with our our friends also so we don't want to give him the message at all that he has some kind of problem like uh, i guess the your your his friend's mom told him that's yeah. that's not good yeah. yeah we don't want him to get that kind of a message from that so i wouldn't tell him he has a problem but we can you know we could tell them it's it's fun to play and sometimes you know it's fun to share our toys too so we can bring that to his attention not tell him you never have to share so he doesn't have to share but we can talk about how it can and be good. I'm hearing a bit in your voice and maybe in the in the way you, you said he was talking, is there some anxiety or obsessiveness in the family? No. no? The, you know, I don't know how I can take it out from his mind. Well, that, yeah, was, but don't... He thinks he has a problem. Yeah, but, you, you know, know, we're not going to just take it out. You know, we can't take things out completely. And that's probably what he was telling you. Like, Mom, why do you keep talking about this? So... One of the things, actually, if you talk about it too much, you can make it seem like it's a a bigger problem. If you tell someone a hundred times something they're doing is not a problem, they start to think this is an issue. You know, they think there's something going on here, even if you're saying it's not a problem. But bringing it up over and over again is going to give him that message. So by you know forcing the conversation too much, you, you might actually be hurting more than helping. So that's something to be aware of. But I was asking in the family yourself also, is there some anxiety or do you see anxiety or obsessiveness within yourself or your son? Mm, I, there's no anxiety, but I don't know what you mean. But, you know, I at this point, I don't know how, what should I do? Just don't mention anything? Not, the kids about it? not necessarily don't mention anything, but I, like I said, I wouldn't bring it up repeatedly. He was even giving you a message, Mom. Why do you why are you bringing it up so much? Um, I, I was getting a sense of anxiety from how you've been talking and the way you said he kept saying, I have a problem, that there might be some obsessiveness, but maybe not. It could have just been he was upset about it and was, was telling you about it. Um, but I would, you know, if you talk about it, like I said, it's not that you never have to share obviously but also not that you have to share every time but we could talk about that it can feel good to share sometimes but also sometimes we want to play with our own toy and that's okay and when we have friends sometimes we share or we play together but sometimes we play separate so i it's not something that i would say give him some exact 
uh, information that this is how we you, he has to do it. But it's something that's going to be a conversation. But the way you told me, how do I get this out of his head? Uh, it does seem like you are very fixated on it and feel like, it, you know, I have to remove this. And that usually means you're going to put too much pressure on the issue rather than help him with it. It's going to make mm-hmm. it seem like a bigger deal than it needs to be. So I'm thinking when the, that kid, uh, my kid's friend, come to our house next time, I will tell him that, hey, if he, my kid doesn't want to share with you, it's okay. Maybe I mention it in front of both. It helps. And I say, mm-hmm. hey, if he doesn't want to share, this is his stuff. He doesn't want to share. Maybe well, I'm thinking I tell this one next time. I mean, the, the way I hear you saying it um, almost sounds harsh to the little kid. Like, hey, don't try to take my, my son's toys. So I get that you don't want it to be a bad experience. Now, I usually don't, especially for older kids, like for parents to say, let's talk about our kids' issues because we want to let them figure it out. But I could see how you didn't like the mom telling your kid he has a problem. So I don't know exactly what she said, and you weren't, I think, there. You heard from your son what he took from it. But that's something you might be able to. It'd be a tough conversation. Um, So I wouldn't go and get angry at the mom and berate her or say what you did don't talk to my kid that way but you can ask her about what happened and and see you know what 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 she'll say and it would be a tough conversation but one you might want to have but i wouldn't make it some kind of deal of you hurt my kid or you did something really wrong because we don't even know what happened exactly yet maybe she just said oh you have to share um, which a lot of parents and you know adults say to kids so that's one possibility but i i'm hearing in your voice again there's this almost overprotectiveness like i have to you know do so much when this kid is coming over to protect my child you know you could talk to your kid but not even make it a big deal that um you know if you want to share you can if you don't want to you don't have to mm-hmm. so so but, i can share with the mom or the, with the kid? well i mean the mom with it's the a, it, what do you think about talking to the mom i don't know the mom is like you know they they have maybe different culture I don't know she's like a selfish uh, person I think so she's uh, uh, she's a Spanish she well, just that, came two yeah. years three years ago by his, well, by that her part, husband here okay but, but the background I'm not you know that shouldn't make a difference the country background or cultural um, background um, so I mean but if you want to talk to her or not you can uh, I was just bringing that up if you felt like what she said was something you didn't like I wouldn't go and get upset with her it's more it's a conversation than anything but with your with your own child I wouldn't uh, make it a big deal and it's okay let's say kids go through these things they oh he's not sharing or he's sharing these things mm. come up so uh, I'm getting the sense I know you're saying there's no anxiety but from how I'm hearing you I'm hearing an anxiety and trying to uh, control the situation and anxiety always leads to control or the desire to control that you're trying to control what's in your son's head what his friend is going to say what's going to happen and if we try to control too much we usually hurt more than we help so as I'm saying you might have to let some of it happen let's see how it is when they play you're already trying to control what happens when they play talk so to yeah. I'm sorry you mean it just let it go not necessarily let it go completely but also not do everything right now if you want to talk to your son when that kid is coming you can see how your son seems maybe he's like happy and fine and so you don't need to make it a big deal or maybe he's showing you he's 
anxious or he's nervous or if he asks you about it, you can talk about it. But but I wouldn't make it some very big deal that we have to, to talk about it in detail. And again, you're not going to just change what's in his head by telling him something. It's more conversation. Things are going to happen. And, and that'll be it's going to be a process more than just like a conversation that changes everything. Well, I don't know. I was thinking that maybe that when the kids come, I would tell them, "Hey, this is uh, he's he he. If he want to show, he show it. If not, but this is his stuff." But I am the way I'm hearing you is again like even the way you say "hey." I mean, to a five year old, <laughs> it's a little bit strong. No, not hey. I'm just saying hey here. <laughs> yeah, but it's still. I mean, but I I just want to tell you what I'm hearing, and I'm imagining what a five year old is going to hear. You know, um, that, that's uh, that's why I, I feel like you're trying to control their playing a bit much, and you have to let it happen. Yeah, and, but I think his mom has attitude. Okay, let's. It's not the way that he should talk with his kids. You know, but, about the friends, and this is not rational. You know. I don't know if it's not okay. rational. I'm not sure exactly what happened, and you don't know exactly what she said um, to your son, right? We don't know what happened exactly. He said. She said he wasn't sharing. And we don't know what happened. You know, maybe your son went to his house and took his toy and wouldn't give it back to him. Okay, then I, I don't know what was going on, right? So I, I wouldn't, it seems like you're really judging this mom and judging this family. And that's why I think your hey is kind of this like protective, like these are kind of bad people or they're not good people. So I have to protect my kid from these really bad people. And I think we have to let it, let, let things happen. Because I, I get the sense clearly you've judged this family and this kid. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just I'm maybe a little bit confused. So just let it go, or what should I do at this point? Uh, like I said, I wouldn't do too much if you wanted to talk. When when did this happen, by the way? Like two days ago. Okay. And so you, you talked about it with him, with your son, and he even said, I mean, again, listen to what your son told you. He basically said, Mom, I don't want to talk about it, right? So I wouldn't push him that he has to talk about it. Um, as I've said a few times now, the the feeling I keep getting from you is a very anxious feeling that you're trying to control the situation. And so that's why I'm saying do a little bit less. It doesn't mean you just ignore it, but I think you're thinking I have to do something so this doesn't happen at all or again. And you really can't do that. You can, if you want, talk to him when that kid is coming over. I wouldn't make it a big deal, um, but I would kind of let it let let it happen itself, and then deal with it because we don't know exactly what happened at the at the friend's house. Yeah, and the other question is, uh, thank you for uh, this sure. one. Other question is, there's another kid. He's like only kid. Their parents are too old, like fifty something years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and his only kids, these are ages my kids. But when we go to the uh, park, he just wanna. Uh, he's basically uh, very selfish and put my uh, kids, uh, uh, you know, uh, down. Then uh, he just wanna do everything, you know. I don't know how I can tell my kids or how I, I can prevent to play with that kids. Well, I wouldn't try to prevent, you know, playing with with the kids. And I'm not, you know, it could just be coincidence, but you've called a few people selfish in in our conversation. So the mom is selfish. This kid is selfish. It could be that they both are. But we also, again, have to let some things happen. If your friend, your kid is playing with them, if your kid likes playing with him, then I wouldn't tell him he can't. 
Um, but I, I, again, I'm getting the feeling of a control that you're trying to control. Yeah, what but happens. you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That, okay. Many times that we're playing, that kids want to uh, take, you know, take everything and just play. And my kids were so upset about it. Last time we went to part like four days ago, my kids was upset and was like, uh, you know, trying to, uh, you know, uh, not fighting, but like uh, kind of, I don't know. Then I just take him out and I said, no, let's go, let's go. And then uh, my, uh, then take him, uh, uh, you know, I think he was like, remember the things that he did and he tried to, you know, do the same thing. That's what I don't want to play with that guy, but I don't know how to explain to this kid, to my kid, that this kid is not, you know, is not a, a good kid you play with him. Well, I would ask your son how does he feel when he plays with him, not tell him what's a good kid. So if your son says, I want to play with him, um, I wouldn't stop him. But if he says, I don't like how I feel when I play with him, obviously we wouldn't force him. But I, I think, you know, kids are going to get into some disagreements. They play, they have fights. These things happen. And your kid will sometimes get upset when he's playing with other kids. So nothing you described was very extreme where I say you have to keep your kid from playing with these kids. Um, I'm Again, the, the, there's a sense that you don't want him to feel sad at all or anything to happen. Of course, I know you love him. You don't want him to feel sad. But we do have to accept that when they play with kids, when things are happening, they have fights, they have disagreements, and it's actually good to let them work it out. So even, you know, you said, I took him away from this kid when they were having some disagreement. If your son said he wants to go, I wouldn't say he can't. But I wouldn't pull him away from trying to maybe he can work it out with this kid or they talk or we see what's going on with them rather than just pull him away from the, the interaction. Yeah, but as I mentioned, that kid always wanted to, you know, take the stuff, the toys or whatever for himself or like uh, be the like uh, like uh, be, be the boss. Okay. And then my kid was upset and was angry about it. I think so, but and that's why when he came, when we went with another kid to the park, and he saw that kid, he just started, uh, you know, just uh, pushing her, you know, or, and then I would try to take him out, and he was, my kid was crying, and then, you know, I think he, my kid, is like, has, you know, said, made that kid bother my kid, and that's why he, just my kids won't try to, you know, kind of fight with him. I don't know, but the, but the way you're saying, you know, I'm hearing if we look at the story, it's that everyone else is kind of bad and like we are good and my kid is good. So if my son did something to another kid, it's because some kid hit him and he did that. But if other kids do it to my kid, they are bad people and bad kids. So this theme keeps coming up. The mom is selfish and even they're from somewhere. This kid is bad and my kid did something. Because maybe to the first friend you talked about, your kid was the one that was taking his stuff, right? You're saying people are so mean to my kid. So I'm getting the sense you're trying to protect him too much and not helping him see actually both sides. So yeah, we wanna see his side, but other kids are playing and doing things. And if he takes someone's toy, maybe that's not good. And we don't tell him it's okay to take toys. I don't know what he did exactly, um, but if he wasn't sharing, 
it's not always good to not share. I do know we shouldn't force a kid to share, but we should also say it doesn't matter. You never need to. And if it's even, let's say, let's say he went to his friend's house and took the friend's toy and wouldn't give it to him. I don't think it would be good to teach him, no, you don't have to share. You can just take his toy and do whatever you want with it. So uh, the theme you keep bringing up, it, it, I'm feeling like it's like the world is dangerous. People are dangerous and they're going to be mean. And I have to keep protecting my kid from all these dangerous people. But these things are going to happen. Your kid's going to have fights with even their best friends. That's okay. But don't think that that means the kid is bad as soon as they have some kind of disagreement. Okay, just let it go. Everything just let no, it no. Go. See, that's <laughs> and that's the feeling that comes when we <laughs> when we want to control everything. We feel like the other option is we have to let go of everything. No, of course not. You're still going to be very involved. He comes, tells you, "Oh, this happened. I didn't like it." You're going to talk to him. You explore it. And yes, if things get really bad, I'm not saying don't do anything. But the feeling I keep getting from you is there was a bad interaction, so I have to stop my kid from being around this kid or these people are kind of mean or bad or they're going to be this way and so I'm feeling like I said the anxiety to me is very obvious in how you're describing the situation so I would want you to think about that and look at that in yourself and it seems like you're trying to prevent him from feeling any kind of pain or getting hurt at all and that doesn't help him and it actually is going to backfire so of course not I'm not saying don't do anything but the sense I'm getting is probably for you doing less will be good being less involved, being less trying to prevent anything from happening. So, you know, I would let him play with those kids again and let's see what happens. If he tells you, mom, I don't want to play with them, of course, we're not going to force him. But if he wants to play with them, I wouldn't tell him he can't. And I would also let him play it out a little bit. Even if they have a disagreement, don't say, okay, we have to go home or pull him away completely. Let them try to work it out. Let him try to work it out too. Let him talk to the kid and see what happens if we overprotect we're also going to take away his strength because he will never have to do things himself so i have the last question uh, okay let's you said you have one more question yeah, just okay. I want to see how we can bring this. Hold on. Yeah, that's a big question. So let's go to a commercial break because we're actually past one, and I'll bring you back after the break, okay? Oh, thank you. Sure. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were with a caller. Let's go back to her now. Radio Hamra, you're still there? Yes, I'm All here. All right. I'm Quick, uh, very quick question regarding the first uh, question that I asked that the mom's, uh, my kid friend said that he, he has a problem. Right now, my kid said that he has a problem. And that's a problem for me because my kid is telling he has a problem. So, yeah. I don't know how can sure. I deal with it. So, and what did you ask? What's his problem? Did you ask him? Yeah, he said, I don't stare with the people. Okay, well, did you ask him what he thinks about it? No, I didn't. Okay, well, yeah, it's something worth, you know, to have a conversation with him. I don't want him to feel bad, and I, I'm not sure if before the break you were asking about self-esteem. Is that? Yes, yeah. but the, first of all, I don't want my kid think that he has a problem. Sure. Just could you please help me for that, that how I can deal with this? Yeah, no, I, and I understand you don't want him to feel bad. We don't want him to feel bad about himself. That's actually... Um, when we're looking at self-esteem, that's what we are looking at is can we want someone to feel good about who they are and, and feel okay with how they are. doesn't mean uh, they know they're not perfect, but they can see themselves and see that they're, they're okay yeah, and lovable. Yeah, especially it's not his fault and he didn't do anything wrong. Well, know, we, don't, we don't know what, you know, I'm not sure what he did. 
you know, when you say he did, I'm not, maybe he did nothing wrong. Maybe he did. And, you know, by wrong, I don't mean he did something really bad, but. He, no, just he didn't want to share his toys, you know. Okay. That's it. I, I don't know exactly. But like I said, I don't know exactly what he did or, and when I said something maybe wrong, it doesn't mean he did something really wrong. But let's say like I, I I'm, I'm assuming if, you know, as an example, not that I'm assuming this happened. Let's say he went to the friend's house, took the friend's toy and wouldn't give it back to him. I would say that's not the right thing to do. Doesn't mean he's bad, but we can see how that's not a behavior we'd want to encourage, or we can just say he he's feeling something and he did something. Um, but either way, we want to make sure he feels good about himself. So yeah, exactly. We want to have conversations with him about what happened or what what is you know what makes him say that when he says that. I was like, oh, I don't. You can say I don't think you have a problem, but what what do you what do you mean? Or let him tell you. And I know he's five five and a half. Right, but he can probably verbalize a good amount about what he's feeling or what happened. And what I would, what is hard for most parents is when their kid is sharing a feeling or something and we, we, we don't like it or we don't like it for them or we don't want them to hurt, we quickly want to change their mind or change it. But what I would encourage you to do is if you can stay with him a little bit. So if he says, oh, I don't know, like I feel like I didn't share enough. And rather than quickly saying, no, no, you share enough, it's good, you don't have to share, sit with him a little bit and say, well, what do you mean? Like, what happened? And let him tell you about what happened, and I was at my friend's house, and then this happened, and then the mom said this, or, you know. And so I would explore it with him in a slow way, show him you understand how he's feeling, show him um, you can get why he might have felt that way. But yes, we want to make him feel okay about himself. Say, well, I'm not sure you you have a problem. Maybe that something happened there, but you can try to slowly change um, the way he might think about it, but don't try to force it to change because it, it'll take some time. So you'll talk to him and doesn't mean that after talking to him, even the way you asked me and I can understand, there's this desire to make him feel good, that you're hoping I can give you, you know, these special magic words or the way to say it that he's going to, you know, we're going to change his feeling completely. But it, these things don't just change like that. And I wouldn't want you to put the pressure on yourself or on him to just all of a sudden change his feelings based on you talking to him. You know, you're going to talk to him. It's going to be a conversation. Things are going to come up again. He'll be with other kids and see how it goes. And he shares or doesn't share. And it's something you can talk about. Maybe he'll play with a friend and say, oh, you know what, mommy, I was playing with this kid and this kid didn't let me play with his toys and it didn't feel good. And then so you talk to him, oh, what did it feel like that? Yeah, I can see how you didn't like that. And then it could be a conversation about, oh, so we can see sometimes it can feel nice when we share with with others and when they share with us. And so, yeah, you know, so it's, it's a good thing. So it's not that your son has a problem, but we're helping to understand this issue of, of sharing and what does it feel like? What does it mean? Um, but like I was saying, we don't want to quickly try to make him immediately. It's almost like it seems like you want to delete this feeling or thought from his head. And we really can't do that to just delete it and take it away. Um, mm -hmm. It'll be part of a, a process that we'll talk to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. And then what we can do to bring the self-esteem off, please? Well, yeah, so, I mean, and that's a big question. This is, uh, you know, um, it's overall how we're going to relate to our kids and treat them because this is just a big part of who they are. And so the biggest thing is we want to make them feel good 
for being who they are, how they are, for feeling what they're feeling. So that's why if he comes and tells you a feeling, even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't like it, at first you want to show him you're trying to understand it rather than tell him he shouldn't feel this way or don't feel this way, which is what a lot of parents do. So our kids come and say, oh, I'm worried about this. I know you shouldn't worry. Why are you worried about it? Or don't be scared of this or don't feel sad. And that actually hurts their self-esteem because we're telling them in a way they shouldn't feel the way they are feeling. And so they start to internalize the sense that what I'm feeling is not good or mommy doesn't like the way I feel or maybe I should hide the way I feel because part of self-esteem is that I can be comfortable being who I am. There's nothing I need to be ashamed of or nothing I need to hide. So even if I do something wrong or bad, we can talk about it. It's not something scary or I, something I should feel really bad about. Or even if I feel something bad, mommy can handle it. I can talk to her about it. She'll make me feel okay. And I can feel good about that. And then also the things that they like to do. You know, a lot of times parents, they feel like, okay, I have to make my kid be this way because if he or she is this way, they're going to have self-esteem because they're doing good things. But we don't recognize that we're pushing them and forcing them in a way, giving them a message that how they are is not okay. So one of the biggest things in self-esteem is to make your child feel good about who they are, how they are, and what they feel, even if sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. Hello. 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 Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. It just yeah. connected a second, but I hear you. Now. Okay. Okay. I hope you got some of um of what I was saying. But yeah, so it's, it's more about the way you're going to make him feel overall. I know it, it would be nice, again, if there was something you could just tell him and then he would have good self-esteem. But it's going to be about showing him time and time again that how he is okay, is okay, that you love him as he is, he can feel whatever he's feeling, he can enjoy the things he likes to do, and the last thing we want to make him do is to feel bad or ashamed for anything um, about himself. So even this thing about, I, I don't have, you know, I have a problem, we don't want to make him feel bad about that problem, we also don't want to make him feel bad that that's how he's feeling right now, right? So he says, I think I'm uh, I have a problem because I don't share. Yeah. We wouldn't want to get so mad. What are you thinking? No, of course not. Why would you say that? Because if we react too strong again, now he thinks, oh, sometimes the things I think or feel are really bad. So maybe I shouldn't share them. And so that's what I was saying, that we have to be ready that at times what they think, feel, say might make us uncomfortable, but we don't want to make them feel bad about whatever that is. Yeah, definitely. We don't want to feel bad, and unfortunately, he is feeling bad right now. Well, but that's what, no. What I'm saying is, well, what I'm saying is, even when he feels bad, you don't want him to feel bad about that. So let's say he says, "I'm sad." You don't want to make him feel like, "No, you shouldn't be sad. Why would you be sad? Cheer up. You need to smile." You want to say, "Be with him." You will try to make him feel better, but not make him feel bad about being sad. And that's the part that I think is very important. That. We don't want him to feel that me being sad is a bad thing. My mom doesn't love me when I'm sad. My mom doesn't like me when I'm sad. That it's okay for him to tell you he doesn't feel good. And that's why as a parent, we have to tolerate our children's negative emotions. Not that we like it, not that we don't want to help them, but that we can tolerate that if he's sad or if he's upset, I don't have to quickly change what he's feeling. I, the sound is making some background noise. I don't know if you can hear me okay. I hear you, yeah, the same, but I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, good, okay. Um, so, you know, even when he's feeling sad right now, like I was saying, don't think your job is to quickly change his feeling. We want to stay with him and show him, 
even if he's feeling sad, it's okay. We're going to be with him. And he doesn't need to feel bad about that. So that's one aspect of self-esteem is to feel that how I feel is okay. And I can share that. I don't need to hide it or be ashamed or change it to make other people happy. Mm-hmm. So how he feel, uh, how I feel about myself is okay. That's what you said. I'm sorry. Well, how he feels is okay. So let's say he's sad about playing with his friend. You need to allow him to still be sad, not tell him he has to change his mind immediately or be happy or that he shouldn't be sad. And that's what I mean when he says, I feel like I have this problem. The way you were talking about it is I have to quickly change this and, and take it out of his mind. But putting that pressure on him doesn't make him feel like he can just be okay as he is or just tolerate his sadness. So that's what I'm saying. And I get that feeling from you that when you see he's upset or sad, it might make you react too strong where you'll start to send him the message that mom doesn't like or doesn't want you to be unhappy or can't handle that you're unhappy. And so even Mm -hmm. it would send him the message to maybe hide what he's feeling rather than share it with you if it's going to make you so upset. So that's what I mean by, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point that... uh, so at this point, I shouldn't tell him anything. That's what we understand. <laughs> no, I don't hope. <laughs> no, no, that's not. I hope that's. I don't think that's what I said. Uh, I was saying maybe at times you'll say less than you used to, but of course you're still going to talk to him about so many things. Um, but it's not trying to force him or put a pressure to change his mind or his feeling. Give him some space that, you know, when I work with families, a lot of times if their kid is sad, they can't handle it. Okay, you have to cheer up. What can we do? We have to make you happy because you're giving the message to your kid. I can't handle you sad. I can't take it. So don't be sad anymore. And then let's say he is sad. Do you think he's going to want to tell you next time? He thinks, no, maybe mom's going to get really sad or upset. So he might even hide that feeling. So that's what I mean is we have to be able and willing to tolerate any of their feelings that they have and know that they will. Every human goes through sadness, anger, uh, you know, happiness, all sorts of feelings. And we want to show him that all of them are, are okay. And we can talk to him about all of those things. Okay. So the, that's why my understanding just, uh, just talk to him and say, Hey, uh, I think you don't have a problem. And then uh, you are, you're okay, and then if the kids come, if something happens, I explain to them that. Explain to who? Explain to the kids that, uh, you know, just talk to them. Yeah. About yeah, talk to them. And, you know, and again, like, you know, we were talking about before, when he, if he brings up he thinks he has a problem, you can ask him more about what does he mean, um, what what made him think that and have a conversation with him about that and we can explore it more so again the the goal isn't just i'm going to take this out of his mind but i want to talk to him show him i understand him and you even do want to understand him more right now maybe we don't know exactly what he's feeling or thinking so we have to ask him and and that's another way of showing him that you value what he has to say and then you know we work with him slowly but it's a process we don't want to try to think we have to change things too fast Okay, thank you so much sure. for your explanation and your show. I really appreciate it. It was really nice to talk to you. Thanks for calling. Thank you, sir. Bye. Sure. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So with the previous caller, there was some issues that uh, came up or themes that came up that I actually wanted to continue talking about because emotion 
uh, and dealing with our own emotions and then dealing with our children's emotions is one of the more challenging aspects of being a parent once your kids especially start to get a little bit older. How we deal with them uh, can be really critical in how we help them uh, develop their self-esteem as we were talking about, their overall emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, the ways they deal with their feelings, what they do with their feelings, and how they feel about their feelings. All those things can be greatly impacted by what parents do with their children. So one important theme, and I didn't use the terms necessarily, but it was coming up with the caller, is our ability to tolerate, so sometimes we call it frustration tolerance or distress tolerance, but how much can we tolerate negative feelings or feelings that are uncomfortable? Now, this might seem like, shouldn't we not like bad feelings? And, and of course, we, we shouldn't like it. They don't feel good. They're supposed to not feel good to signal something to us that something is not okay. When we feel sad or we feel mad, it's telling us something. So those feelings are important and it makes us want to get away from that feeling uh, using the framework of, of Dr. Mark Solms will have next week where he talks about homeostasis, that we have a lot of these different, um, you know, temperature, air, food, hydration, but also emotionally we have kind of a homeostasis or a place we want to be at. And so when we get really angry, we want to eventually get back to the, the calm feeling or to resolve that anger. If we're feeling very sad, there is a, the, the going back to homeostasis means to feel at least calm or happy or feel good again. And so we know that this is a almost a reaction we have. When you feel something, the feeling is wanting you to act in order to resolve that issue. So it, it makes sense that we want to go back there. When you're sad, you want to get away from it. When you're um, angry, you want to resolve it in some way, either by expressing it, doing something, if someone is, let's say, in your way uh, or whatever it might be, but expressing that feeling. It, it makes sense that we have that. But we also have to be able to tolerate negative feelings at times because sometimes, first of all, we get information from them. They tell us something, as I was just saying, their information, right? So you're sad. Now, some people, they get sad, they quickly want to get rid of it, whether it's they try to distract themselves, turn to a drug, alcohol, food, or someone, or sex, or whatever it might be. They don't want to feel the feeling. And so they quickly want to go away from it before, first of all, they even know what's causing the feeling, which actually can tell them something. Maybe it's something in your life you can change, a relationship, part of a relationship, something that's going on. Um, but also, now they're doing a behavior that might hurt them in another way, an unhealthy coping mechanism, because they are so quickly trying to get away from the feeling, rather than allowing it to actually communicate something to them and to work through that feeling and to tolerate it at times. So this is something that we have to first do on an individual level. Uh, we might think that a healthy person is someone who's happy all the time, but that's not possible. It's not even, I think, healthy or realistic when you're engaging with the world. And also if you have relationships, you have things going on, you have your own desires and things you want to do, you're not always going to feel good. And so we have to accept that sometimes we won't feel good. So what's important is what do we do with those not good feelings? And we need to get better at tolerating those feelings, meaning that we can accept that they are there. We know that our feelings don't last forever, so we can patiently 
allow for it to pass as well. Um, there is also the aspect of at times we can do something. So it's not that we never should do something. Of course, many times we can. And this is where I think it's in the, the serenity prayer where we, um, you know, want to change the things we can and accept the things we can't. And then the really important part is to have the wisdom to tell the difference between the two. So, yes, sometimes we can do something that is actually even healthy or good for us to deal with the feeling, but sometimes we can't. And what we need to do is just allow for the feeling to be there or deal with it in some healthy way, but we won't be able to eliminate it because we can't change the situation or let's say what's causing the feeling. But so we need to be able to tolerate those negative feelings in ourselves. It leads to overall better mental health and better coping with our feelings if we are able to be there with them, regulate them, recognize that what we're looking for is a quick fix. So if you are, let's say, sad, you want some kind of drug or something to cheer you up, that's a quick fix, but it has consequences and it hurts us. We can do other things like go for a walk, meditate, talk to a friend that might also cheer you up. It'll act fast, slower. A drug's going to act really quick. These other things will act slower. But this is, again, where we need to be able to tolerate that to make healthier decisions in our lives. So that's at an individual level. But then if you're a parent, first of all, your mindset about feelings is how you're going to think about your kid. So if you think being sad is so bad and it should never be there, as soon as your kid gets sad, you're going to freak out. Oh my God, my kid is sad. This is a horrible thing. We need to quickly get rid of it. And so parents do that. They, okay, what can we do? Distract the kid, do this, buy them something, give them something. And unfortunately, you're reinforcing this mindset that these feelings are so bad and do anything you can to get rid of them. Doesn't matter what it is. There's a crisis and we have to eliminate the crisis. When it's not really just a, a crisis, it's just some sad feelings or some bad feelings. That is okay. So you, you want to have that mindset that these feelings are okay. They're going to come about. It doesn't mean you don't care about them. That, that kind of a theme came up with the caller as well. And I can understand that when we say um, accept that your son or daughter is sad. It can sound like we're saying don't care and don't do anything. But what we're actually saying is hear it, care about it, but respond to it in a way that shows you can handle it and it's okay and it's going to be okay. We're not going to just quickly get rid of it because nothing really bad is happening, but I'm with you and we'll get through this together and you'll get through this as well. So we want to make sure we show them that um, emotions are not something to be afraid of, something they need to, to worry about, and then we can handle their feelings. So first they look to us. And so because of um, the empathy that we humans experience when we see people's feelings, when a parent sees their child upset, they already feel the upset. But on top of that, because they care so much about their kids who are also little and vulnerable, but also parents feel like they are my responsibility. So if they see their child is sad, they can freak out in multiple ways and in a really a strong degree because they think oh, this is really bad and I'm, if I'm a good mom or dad I shouldn't let my kid feel this way so I have to quickly get rid of this problem but unfortunately as I was saying to the caller and I wanted to go a little bit deeper in when you show this to your kid you're sending lots of messages to them which is one feelings are scary and not good and really bad and we want to avoid them also, mom or dad can't handle your feelings. It freaks me out. Um, and that indirectly sends a message. It might be better either not to feel these things if you can, or if you do feel them, to not show them to me. 
Because something I, I talk with a lot of clients about when we're exploring their childhood is looking at how would they feel, let's say, crying or getting upset and going to their mom or to their dad. And very often when people reflect it, I can't even imagine, let's say, going to my dad if I was crying. I, I can't even imagine it because it would just seem impossible, you know, that he would allow it or I would feel comfortable or, or to go there or with their mom. Um, so that's a big realization that you received this message that those feelings are really bad and not tolerated and not something we want to see at all. And again, they're part of being human. So what you're basically saying is part of you, I don't want to see part of something that inevitably is there. I don't want to see, or I can't handle it. So some parents, they put it down. Why are you crying there? What's wrong with you? You're weak. You're this. And you know, a bunch of other things. Other times parents overreact. The kid gets sad and, and the parent, you know, is going, oh my gosh, what's going on? Why are you? No. And that kind of feeling, I hope you can feel it even in my voice when I say that, imagine what the child is feeling. It's freaking them out to hear, let's say their mom or dad getting that way. And so because that's so scary, what would you rather do? Have the person that's taking care of you freaking out or maybe just stuff the feelings away if you can. And that's what the message we send the kids that if I want things to be calm and peaceful, I should just put my feelings away. And that's what children do. And that's what they learn that, okay, my, my sadness, you know, dad can't handle that. So let me just, I don't need to cry or I'll cry alone. And that's the sad part is that your kids still will get hurt, will get sad, but they'll feel that this is something bad or something they need to hide. And that's the issue that comes up with self-esteem is they're going to feel sad. And this part of me is not good. So part of me is bad. This big part of who I am. I have these feelings. And then unfortunately, even if mommy and daddy give them love, they still have this message. Yeah, but if she knew that I cry sometimes or I get sad, she wouldn't love me or she wouldn't love me as much or want to be around me. And this is the same feeling people can have even as adults. Uh, people might like them, but they think, yeah, but I'm not showing them the real me because they're too afraid to show the real them because there's these feelings that they think who could like that? Who could like me if I'm sad or I'm mad or get hurt or you know, all those other negative feelings that we can talk about. Why would they want to be around me? So uh, I must not be really lovable. They're just liking the way I'm showing myself. Uh, a great book on this theme is The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. I think it's a very, very good book that outlines this dynamic where children and the gifted child, in this case, not necessarily good at math or music, but is sensitive to picking up other feelings. And so if a child from a very young age is very sensitive in picking up on the needs and the feelings of others, including their parents, and if their parents have some unmet emotional needs, unconsciously, the roles in a way can reverse and the child emotionally starts to take care of the parents in some ways. So, okay, let me just be a, a happy girl and that's going to make mommy and daddy happy or make them love me. Or let me just, you know, never get angry because they don't want me ever to get angry. And so I put that away and that's going to make them feel good. Or uh, mommy is feeling sad, so I have to cheer her up, which means I can't have my own needs or feelings. I have to make sure mommy is okay because I can see that she's sad. Uh, and so the book does a great job of outlining these different ways that unfortunately, if parents are not aware of their own emotional needs that have not been met, and if they're not allowing for the child to experience all of their emotions and to give them the space, but also 
the comfort and support to feel those things, the child will learn to put their feelings away, to hide their feelings, to feel bad about their feelings. Because again, they're going to have them, but it just means I'm a bad person because I have these feelings, but I have to make sure I stuff them away or hide them in some way. So it's very important for the parents to be able to tolerate when their children get upset because it's going to happen. And we want to send them the message that I can handle it. And you're still okay and lovable even when you're feeling these things. Because unfortunately, sometimes we think we're not. People won't like us if we're that way. So even when your kids are tantruming, it's not that you're saying it's good to tantrum, but you still love them. And this is why actually sending them to a timeout sometimes, if you punish them with a timeout, it could send them the message, I don't want to be around you when you're so emotional. But actually the purpose of the timeout was to help a child regulate. It seems like you're really riled up. You might need some space to take some deep breaths and calm down a little bit, and then we can play or do something again. But not, you're having big feelings, I don't love you anymore, get out of my face. That's actually very, very bad, very, very bad and sends them the wrong message. So as parents, we have to first, or just as individuals, be able to tolerate our own negative feelings. And then with that, be able to tolerate the negative feelings of our children to show them that it's okay for them to be feeling whatever it is they're feeling, and we're going to be there and love them no matter what they feel, and they should feel okay about what they feel too, which contributes to their sense of self and their self-esteem. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing on the theme of tolerating negative emotions or tolerating whatever we feel and frustration or distress tolerance. Uh, I wanted to talk about a mindset that we often have or is promoted in self-help or people that are trying to um, convince you that they can help you, which is that you should get everything you want or you can get everything you want. So if you do this, you're going to get everything you ever wanted. And if you do that, you'll get everything you ever wanted, which I think itself is a mistake to think of that as the goal or even when you know we might say to someone oh i wish you get everything you want and we mean that in a positive way but we have to recognize that this is not a realistic or really at all a healthy mindset or approach to have in life in various factors first of all even in your own life and things you're trying to achieve but especially in our relationships and this dynamic actually does play out that people look at relationships in this way of uh, how can I get everything I want or what I want and shouldn't that happen or shouldn't I get everything that I want? When when you're in a relationship, it is obviously a two-person dynamic, which means that both people have wants and needs and it's somehow finding a balance between those things and hopefully meeting each other's needs, but not looking at it as a, can I get what I want? Uh, Eric Fromm, I think, often talked about this, but I also think in The Art of Loving, he talks about how there's a commoditization of people, that um, we've turned people into these kind of personality packages and, you know, packages of whatever else they might have, and we're trying to get the best deal when it comes to relationships. So can I, you know, based on my market value, trade up, so to speak, or get someone better than me? And then that way I kind of win in this game of love and life 
by getting more than I'm giving. And I think this is very unfortunate. And of course, there are real things to look at when people are matching, that their lifestyles are similar. And, and even in appearance, it doesn't have to be. But there is some level of similarity that will make sense. And in other aspects as well, there needs to be some level of harmony or balance there. So I'm not saying these things don't matter at all and we don't have to think about them um, in any way. But the feeling of I'm trying to get something out of this relationship um, or I'm trying to win in who I get is a really bad mindset to have from the beginning. Of course, if you're in a loving relationship, there's so much you will get from it. Uh, you'll have a companion, you will feel good, you'll have support. If you're in a good relationship, your partner will help bring out the best in you and encourage and support the best in you and all sorts of other good things. So I'm not saying that relationships shouldn't be something that we enjoy or want to have. But unfortunately, when we have the mindset, I'm going to get something, it, it reminds me of when I talk about success and the way we flip that into thinking that a successful person is someone who gets a lot, gets a lot of money, gets a lot of fame and attention and celebrity, rather than a really successful person is someone who gives a lot, gives a lot to the world through their time, their work, their achievements, um, their art, their, even if you create, let's say, a product, but it's about what you give rather than what you get. And I would hope that we bring some of that mindset into our relationships as well, that I want to be in a relationship where I love a lot. I give a lot of love to my partner. And of course, we receive it as well. So some people have the other problem where they're not good at receiving love. And for them, that can be the problem that they only want to give but not receive in the relationship. But often people think, well, what's the least I can give and still get this relationship, get this person to love me. Uh, and I think that's an unfortunate mindset to have rather than how can I love this person more and more. And so what we do when we're dating, of course, we're trying to uh, find a good match and, and, and do lots of things and making sure that's an appropriate match. But what we hopefully are also thinking is I'm looking to see the right partner. And once I find the right partner, I want to give them so much love. And the right partner should also be someone who will want to give you love in return. There should be some feeling of, of reciprocation. But I would hope the desire is more, I want someone that I can love so much, not someone that's just going to love me and give me what I want, that I want to be good at giving them love. And in that same book, The Art of Loving, Eric Fromm very uh, well explains this mindset that many people look at love as just finding the right person and then you live happily ever after. And really that the object or the really the big challenge in love is to just find someone rather than recognizing why am I not also thinking of how am I in the sense of how I love someone. So that's why it's the art of loving that we should put time into it and effort into it and also try to study it. That if we actually want to be a loving partner or to be in a good relationship, are we thinking about how am I in loving this person or in loving someone? Will I be a good partner rather than just finding a good partner? Sometimes we forget that that's half of the relationship is what we bring. And of course, that's 100% of what we have control over is how much we're bringing to the relationship. But a lot of people are thinking, well, I want to wait till someone is giving me uh, love and then I'm going to give it to them. 
yes, there should be some mutuality. I think in um, Mark Solm's book, The Hidden Spring, he talked about like the 60-40 rule, but that was also just in play in other things. So it's not that we keep score exactly that I've done this and you've done that, you did this, I did that. But overall, we need to feel in our relationship some sense of equilibrium and reciprocity. If it feels very one-sided, we don't feel good in that relationship. But still, I would hope that the but that both partners ideally are thinking, how much can I give love or how can I love my partner better? How can I love them more and make them feel good? And, and I would hope they're giving you that, that feeling back. But when we approach it as a type of a negotiation and a commodity, well, the whole thing is, how can I pay the least and get the most? And that's what some people... Uh, want or think they should want. And even sometimes when you look at self-help, um, you know, personalities or the ways they talk about dating, there's a sense of how to get everything you want out of your partner. How do you, how do you get your partner to do what you want? And that, that to me is never the right mindset. You're not against your partner. They are not someone for you to try to control or manipulate. You're in a relationship with them. And so one of the main ways to, to get what you want from your partners, you have to communicate to them, let them know, not somehow trick them into uh, doing what you want, but actually communicating what you want. And in a healthy relationship, they'll want to meet those needs and vice versa. You'll want to hear their needs as well. So the mindset of getting everything we want is a very, very dangerous one to have when we think of it as just, I want, and I want to get what I want. And that's the, the only thing that matters. So we should think about how am I in entering this relationship or who am I in a relationship? Uh, we do have this mindset that everyone else is is bad and I'm already good and all I need to do is find someone who's also good, but should we look at ourselves? Am I a good partner? And actually ask people to, to think for themselves, first of all, what's something that makes you uh, difficult to be in a relationship with? So of course we should think of our strengths. I'm not just saying focus on your faults, but sometimes we forget these things. What makes it hard to be in a relationship with you? What makes it challenging? And even when two people meet, um, not necessarily on the first date, but once they're getting to know each other, I think it could be important to ask, if we're to, we were to break up, what do you think would lead to our breakup? What are the things, the issues that we might potentially have? Oh, you know, it looks like um, I like things to be really free and flexible, and you actually really like everything to be orderly. Maybe this could be a mismatch or it could be an issue. Uh, I'm this way when it comes to this and you're that way, maybe that'll be an issue. Or, you know, I'm really sensitive, so I could get hurt by this and that if, you know, and that's on my side. And maybe if you're not aware of the things that hurt my feelings, that could be an issue. Or uh, we both avoid conflict. And so that could be a problem. Are we going to be open with each other about what's going on? But it could be important to explore. It might not sound like the most romantic thing because we usually want to just think of what's good and how much we like or love each other, which is important, definitely important to focus on a lot, but we don't want to ignore the problems or the issues that are also there and what can turn into problems and issues in our relationship if we're not careful. And we don't want to live in this idealized world. We tend to idealize our partner, especially when we meet, we meet them, but we can also idealize our relationship, that this is such a perfect love and a beautiful love and nothing goes wrong and nothing is going to go wrong. And this can feel really nice as a fantasy, but actually like any fantasy, it, it can hurt us from seeing the reality of what's actually there. And then we might live in a nightmare if we don't pay attention to what can possibly go wrong. 
So I hope that couples will have those kinds of conversations uh, early on or in the relationship to explore what could be our issues. And something else we also have to be aware of is why am I attracted to this person? And attraction is one of those things we can, we can't always spell it all out. And that's why it might take some time to be a little bit more conscious because you might just think I like them. I think they're physically attractive. I like their personality. I feel good around them. And that is very important. But we also can explore a little bit more deeply what might be drawing me to them. And another part of understanding our own faults or flaws is understanding our own emotional baggage that we're bringing into this relationship. So what are some of the the aspects of my family and my family dynamic and some aspects of my parents that I might get attracted to that are actually negative, that might feel comfortable to me and familiar to me, and so I might actually be drawn to them, or that because I have some unresolved issues from my past, I will want to work through them with this new person, with this new partner. If I had a a controlling father, I want to marry someone controlling, but make sure I overpower them so now I have the control. That could be the unconscious draw. So we do want to evaluate a lot of things when we're meeting someone. Obviously, we want to focus a lot on the good and what we like about them and what we are getting attracted to, but we want to be mindful of what might be some of the negative things as well about them, but also about ourselves and to be open about them with our partner. Doesn't necessarily have to be the first date. That's probably not going to happen. But we know that one of the things we do is we're so worried to be ourselves because we're worried that our partner won't love that, that it leads to a few problems. One is that even if they love us, I alluded to this before, we might not really believe they love us because we haven't showed them uh, all of, of, of who we are. Or we wait and then we show it to them way later when maybe they wouldn't want to be with us if they knew all these things or we wouldn't be a good match if they didn't know. So I actually encourage people to be more open about the flaws as well, the parts that we think we should be hiding. Because if you're going to really be with someone that is going to love you completely, they need to know those things as well. And first of all, you need to know them. None of us is perfect. You need to know your own issues. Uh, But we need to uh, express that and explore that um, with our partners as well. So the mindset of getting everything you want, we have to accept that this is not how life goes. We don't get everything we want. We should work towards trying to make our lives more the way we want them to be. So I'm not saying, going back to the the sense of uh, things in our control and things out of our control, you want to try to make your life the best that you can, but go ahead with the mindset that not everything is going to go exactly as you wish. And no one can promise you that. Uh, People who are telling you if you follow this method, everything will go the way you want, that there's just no way. And we're talking about relationships, especially because there's another person. There's no perfect thing that if you text someone, they'll definitely like you. You'll see things like this. Send these three texts and any guy or any girl is going to like you. Or uh, if someone ghosted you, here's exactly the thing to do to get them back. Um, And these things, I think, are really unfortunate and sad that people do this because they're a type of manipulation because they're preying on vulnerable people. Someone got ghosted by someone, they went on a few dates, and then they never called them again. And they're so heartbroken and don't know what to do that they're desperate and looking for someone to tell them. And someone says, I know exactly how to get that person back. And the person's like, yes, finally, Uh, I'm feeling so miserable. Someone is going to help me rather than allowing them to recognize, okay, what is it that's making you so already attached to this person? You know, a whole host of other things that the person can work on. They're just trying to sell them something fake. Uh, 
sell them something that's going to make them feel good. There's no perfect thing that someone could tell you, especially even if they know the whole story, but just a generic thing that will make someone definitely like you or love you. It just doesn't work and it's not real. That's not how relationships work. So if you hear those types of messages, we can understand that they're very appealing. It feels nice to think I like someone and someone can tell me exactly what to say to make them like me back. But this is not reality. So it's another fantasy that we want to believe in. And there's no shortage of people that are willing to sell you these fantasies and this snake oil to tell you that they're going to help you in your life to make it exact, exactly how you want it to be. So when we approach any aspect of life, we want to realize it's not going to just be what we want it to be. We can't just always get what we want, but that's okay. And we're going to have to go forward and face challenges things don't always work out and especially when it comes to relationships there's a whole other person there that they have to want the things that we want and we have to communicate about what we want and need to see if we're then first on the same page to go forward and even when you go forward to make sure we keep aligning with each other but no one is just going to give you everything you want and the world is not going to give you everything you want but that's okay we have to let go of that fantasy and that ideal because it's not realistic and face the realities of our life and the realities of relationships to create ones that are actually healthy rather than ones that are fairy tales and fantasies in our mind. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, today I talked a, a good amount about feelings, emotions, um, and these words, of course, they have meaning to us, but they can also mean a lot of things. Uh, and so I wanted to end the show with just some thoughts or um, ideas on emotions, feelings. What are we talking about? What does that mean? Uh, uh, Dr. Mark Solms, who I'll have on the show Wednesday, but I recently heard him speaking or in his book, The Hidden Spring, he talked about how there isn't some clear consensus on what we mean when we use these words feelings um, emotions uh, affect these are all words that are at times used interchangeably and people can mean different things um, you know the word feeling has a good one because we just were feeling something that that's the the sense that we have I think in uh, Antonio Damasio's book that I read a while ago he said that feeling is that internal state Emotion is when we actually express it in some way. We emote. So, you know, you, you smile, let's say, or you get angry or you show a facial expression. That's emotion. Uh, and then affect can also be used in certain ways. And mood. Mood is usually a like a bigger, um, longer type of feeling, let's say, or for a while. So you can be in a depressed mood for a few weeks. But within that, you might have different feelings. Um, and so sometimes they'll say the mood is like the climate. So, you know, or like the season, let's say it's springtime, but then the feeling is the individual weather of that day could be a feeling. So I'm throwing out a lot of these different terms, but there are a lot of these terms that are used to convey different things about this, this aspect of human experience, which is when we, we feel something, we have this experience, which it's hard to even talk about these things because we have to use some of the words themselves to to define them um, this experience of feeling something and so i've used the word unconscious feelings before but um, dr solm says that you can't have an unconscious feeling or we shouldn't use it in that way because if you're feeling it it's not 
unconscious. Um, but we do have, I think, drives or emotions that are out of our awareness. And so because of that, we might not realize what's driving us. And that's often the case. We get drawn by um, something or moved towards something or away from something. And we often don't know why. But if we explore it a little bit deeper, we might understand what is it that's driving us. And, and so um, Dr. Solms in his book about um, consciousness, and he says that in essence, feelings are at the core of consciousness. It's this mindset that, uh, or this theory essentially, that the feelings are what's driving us in survival. You have a, a drive towards uh, hunger, you have a hunger feeling, it pushes you towards getting food to resolve that feeling, going back to homeostasis. You're thirsty, you go towards um, some kind of drink to take away that feeling that's going away from the homeostasis to go back to homeostasis and you feel that thirst and that's what makes you do that. Or we might feel a need for closeness. You might feel like a hug. So there could be this feeling of not being close or connected. You get that hug, you go back towards homeostasis. So there's these physiological ones that are very, you know, like um, eating, drinking, sleep that are much more those kinds of states. But then there's also things like feelings that we have as humans. So because of that, we have so many uh, complex types of feelings that can come up because we have these very physiological needs, but we have so many emotional needs that also can even conflict in some ways. We have a need to be close, but also we have a need for space and independence as well. Um, we might have a need or desire to be accepted by others, but we also have some desire to express ourselves and who we are. So one of the challenges of being a human is that we have these different feelings, desires, wants, needs, and at times they conflict. They're not exactly consistent. Uh, for example, to make it more clear, let's say you are tired and hungry at the same time. And actually, when I say that, I'm, I'm imagining some of those videos you maybe have seen where a baby or a little child is so tired, but they're kind of eating at the same time and they fall asleep halfway through eating and wake up again and then uh, take another bite of food and then, you know, keep going. Um, but so we can have these two different needs at the same time. And that actually creates this inner conflict. Which one do I do first or how do I handle that? And when they're emotional needs, it's even more complicated. Um, Dr. Solms explains this really well, that there's in the brainstem, this part or this way, this decision-making triad, parts of the brain that make the decision of prioritizing what to do first. What, what do I do now? So you might have lots of different needs at the same time or different needs in some ways that are not completely at homeostasis. But how do we choose which one to do? You know, sometimes it's more obvious. If you can't breathe, um, you don't uh, decide to do anything else, you take care of that. But if you're, for example, have to go to the bathroom, but you're somewhere where you can't, you won't go to the bathroom just yet and you'll put that off until you can. Um, as I'm saying that, I kind of do have to go to the bathroom. We're getting to the end of the show. And so I'm feeling a little bit of that urge. But of course, I'm going to sit here until the, the show is finished and, and continue that. But I have this need or that feeling uh, that comes up. So we have these different feelings. And I think this understanding for me has been eye-opening of seeing how much it's about these um, survival type of needs or even emotional needs that when we get out of homeostasis, the feeling is telling us what we need to do. 
So we need to feel that something is off, but also qualitatively feel what that need is, right? So if you just feel something and you didn't know if you are hungry or thirsty or you need to sleep, it would be very hard because you'd have to keep trying different things um, until you resolve the negative feeling. Uh, It actually reminds me of how we have to be with the baby because the baby cannot directly communicate the need. We just hear the baby crying and we don't know if maybe the baby's hungry, if the baby is tired, if the baby needs to be changed, but we just try to react until the baby stops crying. That's kind of like this homeostasis. The baby is calm again. And then we say, okay, it was that. Uh, Interestingly, especially mothers, but fathers too, they can start to get attuned to their child to the point where they know, oh, I can tell uh, she's hungry or I can tell that's a tired cry, or I can tell that's just, I need to be held kind of a cry. Um, They can start to differentiate that. And essentially that's what we do as humans or we're able to do, or uh, most animals can do is differentiate between what are the different needs and the feelings uh, that we have. And they all have some type of a purpose. Now, coming back to also how we talk about feelings, things like happiness, um, sadness, anger, and these different types of experiences, um, sometimes we think of them as, okay, there's just, are, how do you feel about that? And we think you have to just be happy or sad or mad or one of these kind of primary colors of emotion, if we want to call it that. When really emotion is much more complex than that. And that's why I do like this thinking of it like primary colors. There are these, you know, distinct types of feelings, happiness, sadness, anger, surprise, um, disgust, let's say fear. Um, They are separate in a way, but they can overlap. But more importantly, what they do is they create an infinite amount of colors combining them. Just like you can take the primary colors and take a few colors and with them, with different combinations, you can create an infinite number of colors. That's how our emotional experience is as well we experience so many things. And so this is why something can happen and you might feel, I'm happy about it, but I'm also concerned about this part of it. And you might realize it's not just a pure feeling. Um, the, The Pixar movie Inside Out, I thought actually did a great job of showing this, that originally her feelings were all, you know, all one thing. This is all happy, all sad. But then by the end of the movie, her feelings turned into a blend. So you'd see that it had some happiness in it and some sadness in it. It had some anger in it and some fear in it. But this is what our emotional experiences actually tend to be like. And so going back to the mother who was attuned to her child's needs, the more we try to get in touch and understand our own feelings, the more we can get in touch with the different flavors and contexts that are there and contours where it's not just happy, sad. It's like, you know, I feel actually really excited. It's a really strong feeling. Uh, Or I feel a little excited, but also nervous about this. If there's some anxiety or uh, that type of feeling in there as well, because I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm just anxious, but excited for this thing to happen. And so we can get in better touch with what we are feeling. Um, Another aspect of this is why in certain cultures, they'll have words for feelings that don't exist in other cultures, because there are so many different types of ways uh, of talking about emotions and experiencing them, that it's not just limited to these few basic things. There's almost infinite feelings and we could come up with almost infinite words to describe them. The work of uh, the neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett is very uh, crucial in this uh, work. Her um, 
the, the first book I read of hers was How Emotions Are Made, which I thought was really fascinating. And then she wrote a recent one, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Uh, what is interesting, actually, now I've, I've brought up her, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and then Dr. Mark Solms, who I'm very much looking forward to having on the show next week. Um, there's some sense that their theories might, I wouldn't say contradict, but some disagreement uh, might be there. And so you can hear some of, I heard an interview with Dr. Solms where this came up. Um, but, you know, he, I think, actually explained it very well that he thinks there isn't such a disagreement. And he was praising the work of Dr. Feldman Barrett, but, um, you know, said that I don't think we're actually so far apart. Because she, while he also recognizes um, the fundamentality of certain feelings like happiness, sadness, and those things, Lisa Feldman Barrett is much more from a social constructivist side, saying that essentially essentially all our emotional experiences are things that we learn what they are so there isn't really like sadness happiness and these kinds of basic ways that are just innate that it's all essentially learned i think some of it is innate but then so much of it is learned uh, what are the feelings even what makes us feel those things so i think so much of it is there but i do think there's some things that seem to be innate that we are born with because we see, let's say, children respond, uh, babies respond in a certain way. Or we see animals and there seems to be some sense of uh, commonality in some of the ways. Again, it's complex, but there's some things that seem to be there in, in a basic sense. But so coming back to our own emotional experiences, this is why actually one of the ways that we get better at understanding our feelings is by asking ourselves more and more what we're feeling and this is why in therapy they'll often ask you what are you feeling because they're trying to help you get more in touch with what you're feeling the complexity of what you're feeling why you might be feeling this and that can give you a better understanding of what to do going forward you know so much do therapists say how are you feeling that it's become cliche that myself and many therapists we at times try to find a way to ask you how are you feeling about that or how do you feel about that which without using that exact phrase because it almost sounds you know cliche or expected that you're going to ask that exact question so what did that make you feel for example can be a variation of that or i'm wondering what you felt about that um you know things like that because we're so used to saying how do you feel about that so it could seem like a um, not so important question but the thing is that our feelings are very important because they're giving us information, but they only give us information if we listen to them and also if we can understand and interpret the message. What is it that I'm feeling right now? Uh, and what's also interesting about feelings is when we think about them, we think, well, it's happening in my head. That's where, where I feel things. And that might be where it's getting processed. Um, but when we have an emotional experience, when we feel something, it's not just that it's happening in our head. There's a physiological type of uh, response and reaction that goes with it as well. So we kind of feel it everywhere in a way. And you have probably experienced this. You might feel angry and you can kind of feel it in your muscles or feel it. And uh, if it almost feels like your blood is boiling, we use some of these um, type of euphemisms or things because there is some of that feeling. Or when you feel calm and content, that has a feeling. Or if you're feeling scared, of course, again, the feelings are trying to say there's something in that sense of fear that you might have to get away from or fight so the body is getting ready for that so again the feelings guide our action and even prepare our bodies to, to respond in the best way so our, our feelings are not something we just experience in our head but the more we get in touch with them the more we can know okay 
Um, this is what I'm feeling right now. And sometimes we might not know what's the cause, but later on we can understand it. Uh, I'll share a quick story. When I would go get a, a haircut, sometimes they, uh, when I would go to recent barber shops uh, in the past few years, they'll sometimes trim your beard. And so some of them will um, put your head back in a way in the chair and then with a, a razor cut and clean up the beard. And I realized every time I was doing this, it made me feel a little anxious. I felt my chest get a little tight uh, and I felt something. It wasn't so strong and I wasn't even probably in touch with it for a while. Then I felt it. And then I just thought, oh, maybe it's because my head is back in this way or the razor is sharp. But I didn't really think I was afraid of that because they're doing it all over your face and I didn't feel okay. But one time it hit me. Uh, so when I was about three years old, I was um, due to uh, asthma, severe reaction, I had to be taken to the hospital and they had to do a tracheotomy where they opened my neck. I still have the scar, which I'm touching right now on my neck. And from my understanding, the first time I was put to sleep, but I think the second time they had to do it, I was awake. It was kind of an emergency. And I still have this kind of image of doctors, like the way I see it is like they're kind of uh, coming towards me and it's like the scary moment. And so I realized that when I was being laid back in this position and he was coming with the razor towards my neck, it was bringing up this feeling of when I was in, I was just three years old and in this really crisis type of situation. And so that was the feeling I was having. And, you know, to, to just finish off, our brains are these predicting machines constantly responding to what's going on with what we expect. So in that moment, it was bringing up that same scenario for me, that same feeling. So I realized the feeling wasn't because, uh, you know, my head was back or it wasn't because of the razor itself. It was because it was triggering this old experience, this old feeling for me. And now I was more aware of it. And now when it happens, I still feel it a bit, but I'm more aware of what's going on. So it doesn't really bother me so much. It really didn't bother me a lot, but it's even more easy for me to tolerate it now. So our emotions are telling us something. It's just that a lot of times or most time, we're not exactly sure what that is, but we can work to try to get more in touch with it. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.